Great, thank you. I know that um, Jesse preached a great sermon last week on friendship with God. And so if you haven't heard that, you can go online and listen to that. It, I highly recommend it. And if you have heard it, then you can go online and listen to it again. <laughs> uh, these, the, we've, we're officially over with the Hearing God's Voice series that we started. But now um, my, my sermon this week is on a love affair with God. And so it kind of dovetails with what Jesse talked about last week, talking about our friendship with God. And this week we're going to talk about um, how God uses our relationship with him as a marriage analogy. And so it'll be, at parts, it'll be a little bit graphic, actually, and some of the prophets will go through. Um, and so the question we're going to start with is, are you in a love affair with God, with your creator? Because he is in a love affair with us. He is. That's, and we're going to go through that. Um, and so are we in a love affair with him? And as I was preparing this, I just decided to do a little search. And I went and looked up loneliness on the internet. And what I found was amazing. I, I came across tons of articles. And this is what some of them say. The psychobiologists can now show that loneliness sends misleading hormonal signals, rejiggers the molecules on genes that govern behavior, and wrenches a slew of other systems out of whack. They have proved that long-lasting loneliness not only makes you sick, it can kill you. And here we have um, that science now proving what the Bible says. Here's another one from Los Angeles Times. It says, people who are socially isolated are more likely to die prematurely, regardless of their underlying health issues, according to a study of elderly British population. These are recent. Another one, social isolation kills more people than obesity does. Now, you might be wondering, okay, what is loneliness? Loneliness is essentially want of intimacy. Intimacy, you can say, into me, you see. That's what into me is. intimacy is. And intimacy is basically um, a, a, I want you to know me. I want you to know um, my deepest fears, my deepest secrets, my deepest longings and desires, and that I would know yours. It's just being vulnerable. It's a trust and a confidence, a connection between people. It's a relationship. That's what intimacy is. And so we all need intimacy. And without it, we'll actually die. We will actually die prematurely. And so we need intimacy with other people to survive, but we actually need intimacy with the one who made us to thrive. That's what we need. And so here's some verses that kind of corroborate that. Here's Proverbs um, that says, One who's isolated himself seeks his own desires. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Uh, St. Augustine from the 400s AD, a church father, he said, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. That's our ultimate place. That, that's really what we're made for. When you step back, okay, why am I here? What is my ultimate purpose? What is the meaning of life? And it all comes together in relationship. Nobody can even live alone. And so biologically, that's um, the case. And so how much more spiritually? Um, who are you? There's another verse. I think I skipped it. Genesis 2.18. It says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. Amen. <laughs> and, uh, and he says, I will make a companion suitable for him. So that's the way God made us. He said, it's not good for us to be alone. So who are we? 
And as I d was doing some research, I found that we have different ideas of who we are. And a few hundred years ago, philosophers came along and they said, you know, I think therefore I am. We are rational beings. We are thinking beings. That that's who we are. We are primarily cognitive and that's how we operate. And so we're led by our thoughts and our intellects. We are what we think. And then some other people came along and said, well, that's a little bit narrow. Actually, our beliefs are the lens through which we see the world. And so what we believe about families and society and our career, that's what, you know, makes us who we are. And so our beliefs are who we are. But that also is a little bit narrow, I think. And St. Augustine said that who we are is that we're fundamentally loving beings or desirous beings. We're wanting beings. We have this love pump inside of us that can't stop. It's always going somewhere. It's got, our love has some direction. It's pointed at something. It's aimed at something. And so we all have this love pump. But the question is, where is our love aimed at? We all have different loves. We all have a different love affair. And so this is about the greatest love affair that could ever possibly be told. So I'm calling this a love affair, but it, could be, it should be called the greatest love affair. Because what I'm going to talk about is God's love affair with us. And where are we at in that? And so we are primarily not thinking beings. We're not primarily believing beings, although we, we do those things but we are primarily loving beings. And James K.A. Smith, he said that 3 to 5% of our activity during our day, on any given day, is not the outcome of cognitive deliberation, meaning that most of our day is not led by rational thinking. So for example, you're not going to leave church today and you'll go get in your car and you go, okay, I'm going to put my foot on the clutch, then I'm going to put my foot on the brake, then I'll put my key in the ignition, turn the key on, and I'll put my hand on the gear shift. You don't, you don't think through all of that stuff. We just don't do that. We're primarily, the things that happen to us, the things that we say, are pulled out of us. We don't think through our actions most of the time. If it's a new activity, then we'll go into that, that cerebral realm, that heady realm. But if, it, if it's not, then most of the time, we're just operating out of the pre-conscious activity. We're just um, led by our feelings and by our guts and by our desires. And that's kind of what drives us throughout the day. And so if that is true, we're primarily desirous beings and loving beings, and our love is always pointed at something, then we each have loves that are pointed at good things or evil things, at sports or at our careers or at our kids or whatever it is. We each have loves that are pointed in different places. And this is really what Jesus said. Um, oh, there's my Genesis verse. <laughs> this is what Jesus said here. He says, a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. So what you say flows from what is in your heart. That's Jesus. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Maybe you've heard it that way. Um, and that's, that, so who we are comes out of our hearts, comes out of our desires. And our desires are for good, are for evil, or wherever they are? And that's the question that we're asking today. And in Christian circles, sometimes that we think desire is bad. We've got to kill that desire. It's a bad thing. It's, you know, it's taking over my life or, or whatever. And the fact of the matter is desire is good. God has made us as loving beings, as desirous beings. And, and so desire is a good thing. C.S. Lewis said it like this. 
Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with sex, with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. So if we could grasp a hold of the desire and the passion that God wants for us, that he has for us through his promises for us, that if our desires are pointed in the right direction towards him, that our desires aren't too strong at all. In fact, maybe they're too weak. And so, the question is, what are you in love with? Here's a quick kind of few questions that we could ask ourselves to help us understand. What are you in love with? Where do you spend your time? Um, Maybe I'll just use the example of skiing. Just Maybe there's some skiers out there, I don't know. But if you spend all your time in skiing, that's a good indication you love skiing, right? Then maybe where you put your money. If you spend all your money on ski gear, that's another indication, okay, you love skiing. Now, what do you get angry about? This might be kind of an interesting question. You guys are like, what, how does that connect? But anger is basically um, defending that which you love. And so if you're getting mad at something, let me just give a generic example. Maybe you go, uh, you're at a restaurant and the waitress is taking forever and you have a meeting coming up in 20 minutes. And so you're getting mad at the waitress. You're like, oh, come on. Why they? And you're all mad at them. And you have to stop and go, okay, why, why are you mad? Are you mad because they're an idiot? No. Are you mad because they're slow or whatever? No, you're really, you're mad because they're making you late. So when you arrive at your next meeting late, you're going to be, look bad. You're going to be like, oh, you, you didn't read your schedule with enough time in it to have lunch. And, you know, and so you're actually probably uh, mad that your pride or your ego yourself is going to look bad. And so that's, your, your anger in that situation would be protecting your love of yourself, that you would look good, that you would um, look like you have an ordered schedule and you're on time and you have things together. And so sometimes what we get angry about is actually covering up what we love. It's protecting what we love. And so in the analogy of the ski gear, maybe someone handles your skis and they drop them on the pavement. You're going to get mad. Now, of course, we want to look after our stuff. You know, that could be a legitimate thing. But uh, if you're mad because they, they mishandled your ski gear or whatever, that's because you love your ski gear. And that can be a healthy thing too. But what I'm emphasizing here is just to try to uncover what are the things you get mad about? What are the things that you love? And another indication could be the things you dream of. If only I had this, or if only I had this kind of ski gear, then I would be, you know. Um, I know that's that's a, a narrow analogy, but you guys can apply that to your own lives. What is it in your life? that you spend time and money on and that you get angry over and that you dream of? What are those things that you love? And so now we're going to talk about, that's kind of for you guys, what, what are you in love with? We are loving beings. Now we're going to talk about God's love, his love affair. Who is in God, who's God in love with? And it's interesting in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, 
there's this word yada, and it means to know. But in English, we have just one word to know. In Hebrew and Greek, they have several words, which is very helpful because it defines different kinds of knowing. But in Hebrew, the word yada means to know experientially or in an intimate relationship of devotion, trust, and faithfulness. That is what yada means. And so in Genesis, where it says, and Adam knew his wife, Eve, it means that they made love that they knew each other in that kind of intimate and physical union, that kind of way. And then it says, and they gave birth to a son, you know? <laughs> and so you know, that's what it means. Um, and so this is actually the same word that God uses to describe his relationship with us, yada. And so if, if God is using that as an analogy, obviously it's not physical union, but there's a spiritual union that God wants to have with us. And he wants to know us in that deepest personal kind of way that you can imagine. And so this is a really intense concept. It's an intense, it's the most intense, most intimate relationship you could ever have is with your creator. And God has made us that way. On earth, the most intense relationship you can have is with your spouse. But God has made us for himself and we will always be restless until we find our rest in him. And so God has made us uniquely, and it's a beautiful thing. And so here's an example of a verse where God uses that word to know in relationship to us, his people. He's saying through the prophet Hosea, he says, I will betroth you to me forever. He's talking to the people of Israel, which is the people of God, which is now us. We are the people of God. He says, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy, I'll betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So in the context throughout the Bible, it's saying, and Adam knew his wife Eve, and this person knew that. It's talking about that kind of union. And then God is saying here to his people, I'll betroth myself to you. This is marital language. This is a, a marital love. And then he says, and you shall know the Lord. So that is, the connection is that intense, intimate personal knowing, that intimate relationship, that intimate union. That is what God is talking about. He will know us in that way. That is the fulfillment of humanity, the consummation of humanity. That's what we're made for, is to know our God in that kind of deep, personal, intimate way. I'm going to go through some of the prophets and talk. Now, this is where it gets a little bit graphic about how God compares his relationship to us as a husband and wife, but we, because we go off and we pursue other lovers, we pursue other gods, we put other people before our maker and other things before our maker, he says we're prostitutes. That's what God calls us, and he's calling the people of Israel here. So again, he's speaking through the prophet Hosea in about 795 BC. So about a thousand years almost before Jesus came. And he's speaking in the northern kingdom of Israel. And he's speaking, um, he told Hosea, what I want you to do is go marry a prostitute. And this is an outlandish thing. This is crazy. It blows our mind. We really think about that. He told Hosea to marry a prostitute because that's what my people have done to me. And so it's supposed to be an analogy between God and his people. And so this is what he says. The Lord said to me, says to Hosea, go again. Go again. Hosea's wife, Gomer, has gone off with other men again. He's left him. They, they got married, 
and she's prostituting herself still. And so the Lord says to me, to Jose, go again and find her. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. So Hosea, go find your wife who's right now probably going out and committing adultery with, from you and she's being a prostitute. Go find her. And look at after this comma, what it says. It says, just like the Lord loves the children of Israel. Now what it says, Israel, it's talking about the people of Israel but also prophetically speaking about us, the people of God. And so he's saying, just like God loves us who have gone off with prostitutes, gone off with other lovers, go find her again. Though they turned to other gods and loved cakes of raisins. That's talking, I mean, this is 3,000 years ago. That's talking about the stuff of society, the possessions of the world. What are attractive to them at that time? They're going after raisins and other gods and things that they're putting those things above their relationship with their maker. And so it says, I bought her. Can you imagine? Hosea had to go find her. He had to walk down that alley or that row, that dark place, wherever the prostitutes are being sold and look for his wife. And he goes and maybe catches eyes with her and walks over and says, hey, honey, come on, let's go home. And there's a guy there. He says, no, no, she's for sale. And he's, but she's my wife. But you have to buy her. She's for sale. And he goes, okay, how much? How much? 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. That's how much he paid for what was already his. He bought what was already his. And this is a comparison. Hosea is like God, is a picture of God. And Gomer is a picture of us. So God comes to find us. And 2,000 years ago on the cross, he came looking for us in our prostituted state, bound in darkness. And he comes and says, how much? But we were already his. God says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And he said, how much? It says the blood of your son, Jesus. Sacrifice Jesus to make us holy. And so he does. And so Jesus pays for that which was already his. He comes to find us. He comes and gets us. And then it says afterward, and this is prophetically speaking about when Jesus would come, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear, come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. The latter days is after Jesus. Now we're in the latter days. Now we can come in because of Jesus that he came and bought us back. That is the gospel and the good news. And so at this time, in 795 B.C., God calls the children of Israel, calls them harlots. You guys are prostitutes. And we go to another passage. This is about 200 years later in 595 B.C. Ezekiel speaking to the people of Israel again. And, and this is what he says. This is um, God speaking through Ezekiel to the people of Israel. He says, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you are at the age for love. God is speaking to his people. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. 
I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And this goes on and on for 55 verses, talking about how God came to the people of Israel as they were orphaned and just found on the street. And he came and he cleaned them up and he married them. And he said, I make a covenant with you. But then he says this about them. As it goes further down the chapter, how sick is your heart, declares the Lord, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. You are not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore. You gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. And so 200 years later, we can see the state of the people of Israel that it was worse. Before, they were just harlots. Now, harlotry is a flattering term. And then another hundred years after this, Malachi the prophet speaks and God is speaking through him. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And so you can see that progression of the people of Israel moving further and further away from their God that at first they just prostitute their harlots. They found other lovers. And then harlotry was a a flattering term. And now they're saying, how have you even loved us? And remember in Ezekiel, that's 55 verses of God talking through how he found Israel as an orphan without anything and he clothed her and looked after her and married her and gave her all of these things and clothed her with silk and, and fine linen. All it goes on and on how God has looked after us, his people. And they say, how have you loved us? Because Christianity is primarily about love and it's about relationship with our maker. And so if you think about any other religion in the world, if you think of Islam, you take out their founder. Muhammad is the founder of Islam. You take him away from Islam. You still have Islam. Islam still exists. The Quran is there. All the creeds and codes are there. The five pillars of Islam is there. Everything is there that you can still be a devout Muslim if you take out the founder. Now, of course, the Muslims will say, well, Muhammad was the founder and on and on. That's okay. But if you did, Islam still exists. If you take out Buddha from Buddhism, Buddhism still exists. You don't, we don't even know who founded Hinduism. And the religion still exists. But you can't take out Christ from Christianity. There will be no Christianity because the whole thing is founded on the person. If you don't know in a relationship with the God of heaven and earth, the God who made you and me, then you don't have Christianity because the whole deal is that he came to give himself for you and to covenant with you. And so when he came down on a cross, he proposed to humanity and said, I've sacrificed myself for you. Will you marry me? And now we're in that engagement stage. And that's what Jesus talks about in John 14. And so when he comes back, he comes back to marry his bride. And the last book of the Bible, Revelation, talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's where we celebrate our new marriage with our God. And then it says we will live with him forever. Again, that is the purpose and that is the point that God wants relationship with us forever. And he loves us so much. He, he likens our relationship to him as a marriage. 
And so Christianity is not a set of propositions or ideas or even beliefs that you can just plop into someone's intellectual receptors. You can't just plug in some ideas and there you're a Christian. Because that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is when you encounter the person of God. And it's not like any other religion because any other religion is about following certain codes and creeds. And Christianity is primarily about falling in love. That's what it is. It's a love affair. And so my whole point is let's stop theorizing. Let's stop making it abstract and, and realize this is a personal thing. Let's personalize it. My sins have been covered by Jesus' blood. He wants me to be like him and married to him and not have other lovers besides him. And that is the way we were made. Remember that intimacy we can have with our creator is going to allow us to thrive as human beings. We will find our fulfillment in that. And so just how in a marriage you love the person that you made a covenant with, you won't do anything to harm that covenant. And there may be many good things you could do to harm that covenant, many things that are good in and of themselves. Like you might prioritize your kids or your career above your spouse. But that will be damaging to your marriage in the long run because what you've done is put something else above the one that you've committed your life to. In a relationship, relationships have to be primary. If other things get in the way, the relationship falls apart. 